I've been told from time to time that I should speak up, so I keep working on that. Every time I come up, uh, it's either Ted in the back of my mind going, hey, speak up a little bit. So I'm going to try to do that. I think Mike's got, uh, Danny's got me at a good mic level. Thank you, Danny. And I want to pray as we go into looking at uh, this word from God, because, of course, we can do all we can to gather. We can do all we can to look into the word of God and to take whatever notes we have. But truly, unless God meets us, it only goes so far. And so I was reminded of that this morning as I was thinking about the message that truly God must meet us. So let's talk with him. God, we thank you so much. We thank you that you have not left us alone. You've not left us with just a bunch of commands to do, but Lord, you have given us your spirit and your spirit to remind us of the things that you have spoken because you know that we need that. So Lord, right now, Lord, as I'm, I'm sharing, Lord, with our people, Lord, more than that, you are sharing with us. May your spirit come. Lord, to me, may your spirit come, Lord, to us, each one of us, speaking to us, Lord, those things that you are saying to us where we are. Open up your word for us and open up our hearts to receive your word that we may grow thereby. And may you be glorified in all. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Ben. I think I want to start with a story. This summer, how many of us watched the Olympics or parts of the Olympics? That's a lot of us. We tune in. There's something about watching a competition, right? And just seeing people give their best, people who do things that we can't do or people who do things that we think we can do. And then we realize after trying, maybe that's why they're up there and I'm down here watching um, from afar. And it's cool, there's always different stories or different things that stand out every Olympics. And there was one that captured my attention. Um, there was an Olympic runner, I believe he ran the hurdles. And so he was in from Jamaica. And in being in from Jamaica, he's gathered, of course, with all the other people who are there in the, in the uh, Olympic, I don't know if they call it the compound or the campus, but it's a huge campus. And to get to different events, you need buses to get from place to place. So they have arranged transportation for all the athletes because they'll rest in one place and then they have to go to their events. And being a track athlete especially, there's a lot of, um, I think they would call them heats or preparations or semifinals for each event, right? You have to qualify along the way before you get to the last and final race where you can then have the opportunity to win your medal. So he had made it by this point to the semifinals. And every athlete, of course, gets prepared, right? You have your own way of getting prepared. Um, some of y'all know, know, know this about an athlete. And so as an athlete, he's on the bus. He gets on the bus for the athletic events and he's getting prepared. He's getting his mind in the zone. And if you've watched a lot of the athletes, most of the time they'll have some headphones, right? You may have seen the footage of Michael Phelps with his headphones. He had his Dre beats. And I don't know, every athlete usually has some sort of rhythm and routine that gets them ready. And so I'm sure he's already getting in the zone as he's on the bus and he's waiting on the en route to the Olympic, uh, to the athletic um, competition. But then he realizes somewhere along this ri ride 
that he's headed to the wrong destination. He's headed to an athletic competition. He's headed to an Olympic competition, but it's not the one that he was going for. It's not the one that he had trained for. When he finally gets there, he finds he's not at a track event. He's at an aquatic event. He can't compete there. But that long bus ride took so long that now to ride the bus back, he would get there too late for the competition that he spent his lifetime training for. Imagine that. I can't imagine just the stress of that moment. I am ready for this, I am trained for this, and I'm at the wrong place. So he gets out and he starts talking to the volunteers. There's evidently many volunteers around. I would have thought they were all just like mostly employed by the Olympic Committee, but there's a lot of volunteers there as well. So he finds a volunteer. What can you do? How can you help me? I need to get there. The bus is not gonna get me there in time. And she can only do so much. I don't even think that she was from Tokyo, this volunteer. And so turns out she takes some of her own money, gives it to him to put him on a taxi that won't have any stops along the way that can get him to the event that he was there for. And yes, he does make it there in time. He gets his warm up. He goes through the semifinals and he qualifies to be a medalist. So he qualifies to then go on to the finals. And of course you're wondering, does he, what, ha what happens? When he gets there, what happens like a, the day or so later when he actually competes in the finals? And actually, yes, he does win a gold medal in the Olympics. I think it was in the four, 100 or 400 meter hurdles. I can't remember which. They probably don't have 400 meter hurdles. I don't know. One of you all may know. But he actually wins a gold medal. And the story doesn't end there. But he wants to express his gratitude. So the next day he comes back, rides the bus to that wrong destination that he had been at, finds that volunteer that had helped him. And he shows her the gold medal that she was instrumental in helping him to win. And he says, thank you. And he also offers her a shirt, one of the uh, Jamaican uh, team shirts, I think it was. And he gives that to her as a thank you. And also the whole country of Jamaica, as you can imagine, is thankful because apart from her, without her help, he would have missed out. And also they would have missed out on that gold medal. And of course, it matters, that country count of what country has the most gold medals and so forth. And so she's instrumental in the whole nation being blessed. And so then they also give her an opportunity to come for a free vacation to Jamaica. Come on. I want us to keep that story in our minds. Keep that story in our minds as we walk through this passage. The connection may not be clear in the beginning, but hopefully by the end, we can tie that in to where we are. So Kevin, thank you. He read for us Matthew 6, verses 24 to 34. And it's a familiar passage. Some of us have spent, have spent a long time in this passage. And if we know anything about Matthew 6, it's actually in the middle of a longer sermon. And that sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. Starts in Matthew 5, goes all the way into chapter 7, and Jesus is preaching a whole sermon. And he touches on many things, but it's one sermon. And I want to just focus on Matthew 6 and connect Matthew 6 for a moment, and then we'll move into our points. By the way, our message today will be entitled, Keep Calm and Seek the Kingdom. Keep Calm and Seek the Kingdom. So Kevin read for us, starting at verse 24, and some key things there. No man can serve two masters. Another key thing there, take no thought for your life, what you will eat, drink, or what you're going to put on. Key thought there, seek ye first the kingdom of God. 
But dropping back to verse one, Jesus starts off here. This is not the beginning of the sermon. We're already about a third of the way into the sermon. He starts off here and he says, take heed, pay attention that you do not do your alms or your good deeds, your good works before men to be seen of them. Don't do your good stuff so that, hey, everybody sees I did good here and then they can praise you for it. Don't do that, he says. Instead of doing that, hey, how about you just do your good works and keep it a secret? Don't publish it. Maybe don't don't Facebook that, you know, maybe don't publish that because you're not about to seek the praise of men. That's not the reward you're after. The reward I want you to be after, Jesus is telling us, is a reward that can only come from the father. He moves on and he says, hey, when you pray, don't be like those hypocrites, those actors who like to find the street corner. And once they found the proper street corner, then they pray loudly, they're talking to God and there's this conversation they're having with God, but there's also this performance they're having for everyone else. He says, don't do that. How about when you pray, go find a private spot. And when you find that private spot, that spot in secret, then the Lord who sees in secret can reward you because that's the reward you should be after. He moves on and he says, hey, when you fast and you're starving yourself, when we're fasting, right, we're not eating. Usually that's the idea behind a fast. We're fasting. And we do so because we're seeking the Lord. He says, when you fast and you're not eating, maybe for these days that you're not eating and you're getting hungry and your stomach's growling, right? And you're feeling that weakness. Some people, he says, when they fast, they like to make it known to other people so they don't wash their face. They don't take care of themselves so that other folks don't. Man, they're looking a little bit of a mess. Why? Oh, he's fasting. He's seeking the Lord. Wow, good job. He says, don't do that. Instead, when you fast, wash your face, put yourself together so that you don't appear to other people to be fasting, so that your heavenly father who sees, and that should be the whole purpose for your fast, right? Your heavenly father who sees then will reward you openly. Then he adds to that and notice, stop going for the praise here. You want the reward that can only come from heaven. You want the reward that can only come from above. And so then he continues, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth. And he talks about how those treasures will pass away. He talks about how they do not last. Just like all of those things that we publish maybe and that we want other people to see, that credit and that, uh, that acclaim will only last so long. We've had the Olympics this year. There's gonna be some more Olympics later. And there's gonna be the next one and the next one, right? When I was a kid, it was, I think Michael Johnson was the, was the fast runner. Then it was Usain Bolt. And now there's other folks who are passing on, right? These things only last so long. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, but lay up for yourselves instead treasures in heaven where they will not be corrupted. And then he continues and he has this weird statement here. He says in verse 22, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single. And keep that idea of single in mind. If your eye is single, your whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, so he's now given two options. Your eye can be single or your eye can be evil. If thine eye be evil, the whole body, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? And then he moves to 24 where Kevin read for us, no man can serve two masters. And I think that that thought flows directly from what came before it. What happens, what am I doing? When I stand on a street corner and I'm praying to God in heaven as a performance for men, 
but serving two masters. I'm after two things. God, answer this need. People, please notice. I'm serving two masters. So I think this all connects, which brings me then to my first point, the contradiction. The contradiction. No man can serve two masters. And it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't start with saying, no man can serve the master of the earth. No man can just serve the devil. Hey, please stop serving the the earth. Don't live for this. He doesn't say don't serve this one thing. He says you cannot serve two things. In that there is an assumption that people are trying to serve two things. And I think that that assumption is reflective of the people that Jesus is talking to. And I think it's reflective of the ancient world. I think it's reflective of us today. One, the people that Jesus is talking to are living in Israel and they're looking for a king to deliver them from Rome. That's kind of their obsession. Christ has come to deliver us from Rome on earth. There is an earthly deliverance and that's the king they're looking for. And that's the throne they want to put him on. But that's not the throne Jesus is about to sit on. So that's their obsession, something on earth. And Jesus is trying to point them upward. There's this kind of two masters going on. But even in a bigger picture of this two masters, we like to serve more than one thing. And in Rome, they had many gods. They didn't just have two gods. They had a whole bunch of them. And that didn't just come from them. You could take that on back to the Greeks. And they had a whole bunch of gods. Actually, the Romans basically took the Greek gods and said, let's rename them and let's keep this good thing going. And we're serving many gods. And let's make sure that we keep Aphrodite happy while we also try to keep Zeus happy, while we also try to keep all these other gods happy. Let's keep them all happy. And that's a really, really difficult life. And if you know anything about the Greeks and the stories that they tell, it's so difficult and they can never please them all. Because no man can serve two masters. That's not just a Greek problem and a Roman problem. That's an Egyptian problem. When we look back at Egypt, they had many gods. And a big part of the reason that God sends 10 different plagues is he's taking those gods out one by one. Many gods. That's not just an Egyptian problem. That's an Israelite people of God problem. And we can trace that back. Look at Solomon. He glorifies the Lord. He exalts God. He builds God a temple. And then after he's done building God that temple, he builds his own palace. And he also starts all these different marriages. And he's marrying all these different women. And some of these different women come from lands where they don't worship God. They, in fact, have their own gods that they worship. And what does that do to Solomon? But make him try to serve this God and this God and this God and this God. Oh, and the Lord God. And does it work? We cannot serve two masters. It's not just a Solomon problem. You could take it back to Jacob. You can also take it back to when Moses, after all those plagues where God delivers Israel from Egypt and he shows Egypt's gods don't work. They take those Egyptian gods with them. Those gods that don't work. And Moses has to tell them when they get to receive the law of God, hey, put away those gods that are among you because we love to serve more than one master. That it's not just an ancient world problem, it's an us problem. Especially today. Don't we like to multi everything? Last night as we were sitting down and I was kind of perfecting my notes or trying to perfect my notes, they never get to a perfect state. Lord, please help me. Um, But I was working on it. And I said, Abby, you know, I'd like to talk about this as we eat. You know, so she had made dinner. So she's like, no, you can't do that. Because if you do that, the food's going to get cold. So we can't talk about it while we eat. Just eat and then we'll talk about it afterward. I said, no, I want, I, want, I want to talk about it while we eat. So I'll, I'll eat, I will eat and we'll be able to talk about it. So she puts the bowls in front of me. I've got a bowl of some 
good eggs and some sausage and some hash browns. Then I got another bowl of oatmeal over here and I love to have all those together, right? So I got these two bowls of food right here in front of me and I've got my notes because I'm looking at my notes. And then I've also got my computer where I'm typing up my notes. And then I want to talk with Abby about, you know, the message. And so we're talking and I was like, you know what? I got to this part of this point about multitasking. And I said, you know what? We, we love to multi everything kind of, don't we? And thought about it a while as I looked down in front of me at my computer and my tablet and my bowl here and my bowl here and the fact that I haven't really <laughs> accomplished my goal. The food was getting a little bit cold and I'd eaten some of it. The notes were kind of getting somewhere and I'd done some of them, but we like to multi everything. We not only do we like to multitask, I think we like to multi-worship. We do. Think about that in your life. Where and in what ways do we worship God and then we also worship something or someone else? That's not really possible. To give an analogy of how silly that is, to try to worship more than one God. Imagine our solar system. What is the biggest and most important and greatest thing in our solar system? The sun. What would happen if we had two suns? Everything in our solar system right now revolves and it orbits around the sun. And introduce another sun to that and what happens? Does it work? Everything's gonna be off balance, right? Something's either gonna be caught in the orbit of one or in the orbit of the other, but it cannot orbit both. And we are not created to orbit two masters, two gods. But isn't that a part of what we do, especially in America, I think. Um, this is not a statement really against capitalism, but I think this quote really brings out something. And so this quote comes from a philosopher. I don't know anything about his other beliefs, um, but there's something here that he's getting at that is, touches on some truth. So here for that, he says, capitalism is religion. Banks are churches. Bankers are priests. And when we come to worship, right? I'm here for my money. There's this exchange. That's kind of what he's pointing to. Bankers are priests. Wealth is heaven. Poverty is hell. Does this sound like America? Does this sound like a struggle that we have? He says, rich people are saints and poor people are sinners. Commodities are blessings and money is God. And we worship. And I like to think, no, I don't worship because I worship the Lord God Almighty. But do I not worship two masters? Worship God and then worship for money. Are we split and are we divided? And we have to correct that. Listen to this where a priest, um, somebody who basically, I don't know if he would be a priest per se, but he's a minister in a Catholic church in the Philippines. And he tries to give a corrective prayer. Listen to this prayer and ask yourself, does this correct it? It's called the true millionaire's prayer. Today, I ask you, he's talking to God. Today, I ask you to bless me so that I may become a blessing. Lord, I commit myself to enrich others. But because I cannot give what I do not have, I commit myself to become rich. I commit myself to serve you and to serve the poor with my wealth today. I open myself to the abundance of the universe. Use me 
as your channel of love. Give me the ability to create wealth that will bless the world. Increase my financial wisdom and expand my territories. I place my life in your hands. Amen. What do you think about that? Is he serving one master? Talk with Abby about it, and she pointed out, he says, I commit myself to become rich in a prayer. And he's talking to the Lord, trying to serve the Lord, but he's committed himself. I commit myself to become rich. As a matter of fact, he's basically said, unless I become rich, I can't give. Is that serving the Lord? Is that what it means to serve God? Or is he trying to serve two masters? Is he wholly giving over to money? I don't think so. But is he wholly given over to God? There's a contradiction. And that contradiction is something that is, we all have to wrestle with and we have to deal with. And just quickly to deal with that point that's wrong in that prayer, Paul points out that we should give no matter our condition whether we are poor or whether we are rich. As a matter of fact, he writes to the Corinthian church, who I believe was a fairly well-to-do church, and he tells them about a church that is not well-to-do. He tells them about these, church, this church, these churches in Macedonia. In 2 Corinthians 8, if you want to follow, he speaks about this. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 7, and I'll skip also over to verse 9 as well. In 2 Corinthians 8, starting at verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, writing to the Corinthians, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. I want you guys to check out what's going on in the churches in Macedonia. What's going on there? He says, how that in great trial of affliction, in difficulty, the abundance of their joy. Wow, what a, what a picture. They are going through difficulty. They are going through a tough time, but they are abounding in joy. That's what he says. And their deep Poverty. They are in great trial of affliction, but they're abounding in joy. They are in deep poverty, but notice what they do in the midst of that deep poverty. Their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Their liberality means they're giving. In their deep poverty, they're abounding in giving. So much so, look what he says. For to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, beyond what was convenient, they were willing of themselves and praying us with much entreaty. They kept asking us that we should receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord, serving that one master. And unto us, by the will of God, in so much that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. What same grace? That grace that was happening there in Macedonia, where they are in poverty, but they're abounding in giving to the point that it goes beyond what's convenient. Maybe they're giving their next meal. Maybe they're giving those funds that they need for the next week, right? But they are abounding beyond what is convenient for them. And they are definitely not rich. That's very different from the prayer that says, because I cannot give what I do not have, I commit myself to become rich. I can give, just like that widow who gives two mites 
the last that she has. And Jesus says about her, she will not lose her reward. Do we try to serve two masters? That's a contradiction. But that contradiction is not only a problem, but it, it, it works something in us. It stresses us. Imagine that, trying to serve two masters. That's stressful. You got two bosses, a husband with two spouses, a wife with two husbands. That is a stressful situation. That's basically what we do when we try to serve two gods. And what is Jesus dealing with here? He's also dealing with that problem, that stress. So my next point is the calming, the calming. He says, stop serving two masters. That doesn't work. From that, he continues in the next verse. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon really being the riches of this earth, things here. Riches and abundance here. You can't serve both. You can't serve God in heaven and serving riches here and making them your master, making them your Lord. That word master really has to do with, it's a title also that is used about a God, used about God, the Lord. When you see that in the Bible, often that's that same word, Greek word there, translated master here, the Lord. You can't serve two of them. You can't make money or things on this earth your God and live for them and live to please them or live to get them and make that what you're about. And then he says, therefore I say unto you, therefore from that that I've said already, Take ye no thought, take no thought for your life. And that word take no thought, take no thought um, is really a word meaning take no anxious thought. In other words, don't be anxious. That anxiety that we feel, don't be anxious. As a matter of fact, that idea of take no thought, he repeats it three times in these verses. Three times he says, don't be anxious. Don't worry. Hey, don't be anxious. When somebody says that to you, what are they trying to do? They're trying to calm you down. Bring some peace to the situation. And Jesus says three times, don't be anxious. And what's he trying to do for us? Calm us down. Are you calmed? Are you calmed by your God? Let's not pass over that lightly. It matters to God that we have peace. He says it three times. Do we have the peace that God is intending for us? How do we have that peace? We'll get to that in a moment, but first he's calming us. This word about anxiety is also the word that Jesus uses when he speaks with Martha. If you remember the story about Martha and Mary, right? They're sisters, they're there in the same house and Jesus comes by to visit and he's preaching, he's basically sharing the gospel with those in the house, right? And Mary has plopped herself right down and she's listening. And Martha is making sure that everybody's taken care of, right? And there's nothing wrong with making sure everybody's taken care of. But Martha gets to this point where she's like, man, Mary's sitting over there and I'm over here washing these dishes and getting them ready. She's sitting over there and I'm over here preparing the food, make sure everybody's got what they need. She's sitting over there and I'm over here making sure everything's working. Jesus, say something to her because she's left me. And what is she in that moment? Is she calm or is she anxious? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, 
you are careful, you are anxious about many things. But Mary's chosen the good part. And don't miss what Mary has chosen. Where was she? But at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is basically just pointing out, Martha, you've got anxiety here. Mary doesn't. Where do we then find that anxiety is released? But at the feet of Jesus. And so that's why Jesus repeats, take no thought three times. Take no anxious thought. This is the same idea of, he's not saying don't think about it. He's just saying, don't be anxious. Sure, you're going to have to think about it. You're going to have to make some food, right? That's, that's important. And we'll see even more how he says that later on. As a matter of fact, I'll just say right now, like Jesus says, look, your father knows you need these things. You need food. He knows that. So Jesus isn't saying you don't need food. If you think about it enough, you realize that, you know, you don't need food. You got God. What he's saying is God knows you need food. You don't have to be anxious because he's taking care of you. God knows you need clothes. You don't need to be anxious because he's taking care of you. This is repeated in Philippians, this idea where um, Paul writes to the Philippian church and he says to them, be careful, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Oh, Rick, okay, you're going to have needs. And they're going to need to be met. So what do you do? You go to your father and let your request be known to him. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here in this passage. And it is calming. And we need that today. I was looking at some, uh, a Gallup poll that came out this summer. They do all these polls. And it's really fascinating to see these. And so they did a poll of working people in the world. And in that poll, they find out that in the past year, hello Americans, we are more stressed than we were a year ago. Is that surprising to anybody? Anybody like, whoa. <laughs> I asked the teens this. I asked them, what, why do you think that that is? What would make us more stressed now than a year ago? Fear. What else? Huh? COVID, yes. We've, unemployment, yes. There's a, huh? Housing, yes. There's a lot of things that have gotten to bother us. And we are more anxious by eight percentage points. Now we're more anxious. 57% of people are saying, working people are saying, hey, I have anxiety or, or stress on a daily basis. So that means more, the majority of the people that you work with Kids, that means the majority of your teachers are probably stressed on any given day. That's us. And by the way, that stat actually includes Canada. And I don't know, I feel like Canadians are probably less stressed than Americans. So I wonder what would happen to that statistic if we took the Canadians out of the poll. <laughs> That's just me. Another fascinating piece is it showed by country what countries kind of had the most stress. And interestingly, what countries would you think what major countries would probably be less stressed? I'm just curious if anybody has any thoughts. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so maybe Africa, right? Okay. Yeah. Say it again. Putin. Uh, where? Oh, Bhutan. Yes. Okay, I was trying to understand. Cool. Because I'll tell you why I heard Putin. Um, because the country that actually had the lowest reported numbers, but large, lo largest country that had the lowest reported numbers of stress was actually Russia. Now, I'll let you guys think about that however you want to think about that. But uh, I said, there's something going on here. Uh, but anyway, in America, we are more stressed. We've got stress to deal with. And what is Jesus saying for us except take no anxious thought? And it is interesting, right? As um, Danielle, I believe, was, was pointing out, in countries where they may lack, they may not be as stressed. They may not have the food that they need as readily available as we do. Like I walk into my, my, my kitchen right now, even if I don't go grocery shopping, there's something that I can find to eat because I'm not, that's generally how most of us live or it's fairly convenient to get to the convenience, convenience store, right? And find what I need. We are one of the richer countries, most rich countries. And yet we are more stressed. So it doesn't really have to do with what we need, does it? Doesn't really have to do with lacking something, really, or does it? Play around with that. But Jesus is telling us, take no anxious thought. And instead, he gives us an answer. He gives us a calling. So this is my third point. He gives us a calling. From all of that that he has said, take no anxious thought. Your life is more than meat. Know that, right? Your life is more than the food you eat. You could find anybody out there, out there in the world pretty much who would say that. Yeah, life is more than just the food we eat, guys, right? Our life is more than the clothes that we put on. Jesus says, take a look at the fowls of the air. So he says, take a look at them. I want you to imagine them for a moment. How do they eat? The early bird gets the what? Gets the worm. They still go to find it, right? They don't sit there in their nest and go, okay, a worm's about to hop up in this nest. So that's not the picture that Jesus is going for. But what is he saying? Are they stressed? <laughs> if we took a stress poll of the birds, they're going to be like, okay, yep, on a daily basis, I'm facing stress. No. Take a look at the fowls of the air. Why? Your heavenly father feeds them. And your life is more than that. He says, take a look at the grass of the field and the flowers that grow in the field. You need clothes, those flowers, right? They're going to be beautiful too, just like you want to be beautiful. Ladies, I'm not about to get honest about how we try to make sure that we're beautiful overall. We have to display ourselves, right? We have, we have these clothes that we put on. We need to put clothes on. And Jesus says, the flowers are on display. And who put them on display? God. And they are clothed to the point that one of them one of them exceeds Solomon in all of his glory. Don't miss that. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one. One of these. And I'll just simply ask a couple of questions to get to the point. Did Jesus die for flowers? He gave his life for us. So we matter much more 
And if God clothes the grass of the field, that just is going to be here today, gone tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you? And what is Jesus saying to us? Calm down. And he says instead, therefore, take no thought saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. When he says Gentiles there, he's basically talking about those who don't follow the Lord, those who don't worship him, those who aren't Christians. He's saying everybody out there in the world is going to seek after that, but not whom? Those of you who follow him. After all these things do the Gentiles seek. He says, for your heavenly father knows that ye have need of these things, but seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does it mean to seek, crave, desire, even demand in some sense? Think back on the footage that a lot of us saw over the past week or the week before as well. What's going on in Afghanistan? Seeking a way out. They were seeking something to the point that they're clinging to airplanes and plunging. They're craving something. What do we seek and what do we crave? There's differing levels of craving and seeking, but what are we seeking? He says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. What does it mean to seek? Well, also get the picture of Mary and Joseph when they went to the temple and Jesus was 12 years old and he went to the temple with them and then they leave town and they're thinking that he's with them and he's not with them. Think about the parents that leave and their children are nowhere around. What happens in that moment? Oh man, I've got to find my child. And so they seek him for days. That word seek is the same word used here. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does it mean to seek first? Well, first. The principal thing, the thing that's most important, highest in rank. Seek first what? The kingdom. And that's a big concept. That's a sermon for another day. We'll leave that one for pastor. I like to let him handle the big stuff. But the kingdom overall, right, would be the rulership of God. So it's the ruler, it's the realm in some sense, but it's even more the reign of God. The kingdom of God. Seek first God's kingdom, God's stuff and God's society, if we were to put it in that way. And he also says, seek his righteousness. What is righteousness? Look up that word. And basically, it's a word that means something as it ought to be. Something as it ought to be. This is a water bottle. And I can tell you, Go find a water bottle out there. And if there's a water bottle out there, you know how to find it. It would look just like this. But imagine if I cut the bottom off. And I say, find me a water bottle. Would you bring me that water bottle that's out there with the bottom of it cut off? And now there's, is there water in it anymore? Is it really a water bottle as it ought to be? No. That would be like not righteousness. Righteousness is something as it ought to be. Seek God's Righteousness things as it ought to be. When God created the world, he said, behold, it is good. When he finished on that last day of creation, man himself, he God looks at man, he looks at Adam, it's good. This is very good. But then something changes it and makes it what it ought not to be. And what is that thing? Sin. That is not righteousness. And so our world, when God says, when Christ says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, seek the kingdom of God and things as they ought to be. And I want to give a quick picture of this 
as, as it comes to just one aspect of life. So how do we see righteousness in one aspect of life? I want to look at specifically how we communicate. Let's turn to the book of James. James chapter 3. In James chapter 3, he's going to talk about our communication. I believe it's verse 2. I'm looking at where I kind of clipped my notes. He says, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, if many, any man doesn't offend in the things that he says, doesn't hurt anybody with the things that he says, doesn't do anything wrong in the things that he says and how he communicates, the same is a what kind of man? Perfect. A man as he should be. Righteous. The same as a perfect man. And able also to bridle the whole body. But he gets to a problem when you skip over to, I believe, verse 8. He says, but the tongue can no man tame. The tongue. You can't tame it. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith, and notice this, therewith bless we whom? God, even the Father. And therewith curse we whom? Men. Same tongue two things, two very different things. Is this righteous? Is it righteous? No, that's not the tongue as it ought to be. That's not me speaking as I ought to speak. I can bless God and then I can curse men. That is not what should be. And he points that out actually. He says, Therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. In other words, it's unrighteous. And Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, things the way they ought to be. So is there a problem in my tongue? What do I need to do? What does it mean to seek righteousness when it comes to how I communicate? I've got to correct that. I've got to fix how I communicate with my fellow men, with humanity. That's what it means in communication to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he even points that out. Look back. He says here, he points out, hey, a fountain, should it send forth sweet water and bitter from the same fountain? No. Can a fig tree bear olive berries? It's a fig tree. Should it be bearing olives? No, it should bear what? Figs. So he's like, that doesn't work. And just like that doesn't work, it doesn't work for your tongue to give blessings and cursings. Skipping on down, he says, who then is a wise man endued with knowledge among you? Let him show it. Let him show it how? Out of a good conversation. That's what it means to seek his righteousness. Am I showing it out of my conversation? When I speak, do people know, hey, I'm speaking as God has made me as I ought to speak. Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. He says, but if you have bitter envyings and strife in your hearts, ooh, that's wrong. That's not good. He says, if you do that, that that wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, it is sensual, it is devilish. For where envying and strife is. And don't you know some people who just love some strife? And sometimes I might be that person. He's like, that is earthly, that is sensual, that is devilish, and that ought not to be my conversation. He says, but the wisdom of God, sorry, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure. Are my words pure? Am I seeking God's righteousness? He says, then peaceable. Ooh, are my words peaceable? Do they make peace? 
That's what it means to seek his righteousness. It's gentle. Are my words gentle? That's a part of what it means to seek righteousness. He says, easy to be entreated. When I speak, am I also ready to hear from others and hear and receive what they're saying? Is it easy for them to do that and for me to receive that? Oh, that's a part of what it means to seek his righteousness. Full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, my kind to some people and then not kind to other people, without hypocrisy. And notice this last part, and the fruit of righteousness. Things as the way they ought to be. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. There's a practical living out of what it means to seek God's righteousness. And so when Jesus says that, hey, there's all kinds of ways to live that out. Us, the way that we ought to be. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, that food, that clothing, all these things shall be added unto you. In other words, God knows that you need them and God will take care of his own people. Doesn't mean that we won't ever be hungry at times, but it means that God knows and God has made us for a purpose and he will not let us perish without accomplishing his purpose. So I will have everything that I need. As a matter of fact, scripture tells us that God has given us everything that, about, that, that pertains to life and godliness. And we are just like that bird. And God is taking care of us. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself. In other words, let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Ladies and gentlemen, what is God saying to us? Calm down. So now I want to bring this to the application and the point, and we're going to be done here. I think there's a couple of things to connect with. First of all, to believers, serve only one master. One. We cannot, we cannot, we cannot serve two masters. Serve one. And here's where I bring that story back at the beginning. I think that oftentimes we would say we intend right? To serve God and his kingdom. We intend to seek God first in his kingdom. We intend to seek his righteousness. But there was an athlete that intended to be at a competition. He had trained for a competition. He had gotten ready. He had shown up at Tokyo ready, but he got on the wrong bus. In that moment, he wasn't intending to serve two different masters, but there was an aspect of serving too. He wanted to be here. He ends up here. Where in our lives are we getting on the wrong bus? You may be training, and I hope that you are, and I believe that I see that we are, right? But are we in every aspect of our lives seeking only the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Then I want to say for those of us who maybe we don't know what it means to be a child of God, a believer, have we received salvation? Then that's a first step because when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, hey, that righteousness only comes in Jesus Christ. So do you know him? Like I said, he died not for the flowers, but he died for you. He loves you. And he's saying, calm down. But that doesn't happen apart from me is what he's saying. Seek first 
God's kingdom and his righteousness. So if you have questions about what that, that means, ask a believer here. We'll be glad to share with you. I'd be glad to share with you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. God, I I just want to thank you that you care about our anxiety and our stress. And you tell us, don't be anxious. Stop it. But you know that we can't just stop it on our own. We need to be provided for. And so this is where we have a father in heaven who provides for us. Because if it doesn't pass your attention, if it doesn't, if you don't miss the bird, then you definitely don't miss us. You see us and you see our need. God, I pray that we would find that you are faithful because you are indeed faithful. And may we seek you first in your kingdom, your righteousness. There's aspects of our lives, Father, that need to be brought into righteousness into the way they ought to be from the way that we've been living. I pray that you would make that clear to us such that you cleanse us from this unrighteousness. (laughs) And you do that work in us that makes us the righteousness of God. Thank you so much for your word. I pray that you will bless your people as we go forth. May we ponder what you have said to us and live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.